We're working through the three classic rapture timing views, and we spent several months on the strengths of the pre-trib view, and then we dealt with the mid-trib rapture. And last time we started looking at the post-trib rapture. And as we begin tonight, let's do a quick review of the tribulation so we're all on the same page. This is the classic premillennial view, meaning that Christ comes before the beginning of the thousand-year reign, just like you see the transition from the second coming of Christ in chapter 19 of Revelation into chapter 20 of Revelation, where seven times it says, and then after he returns to the earth, he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. So the classic premillennial view, and within the classic premillennial view, there are three uh, classic views of when the church will be taken out by Christ, caught up, rapturo in the, in the Latin vulgate, um, the, thus rapture is how that's been translated, it, it, it transliterated into, into English, so uh, it just means the catching away, that's what rapture means. Um, and so here we are in the present, and at some point in the, in the future, the pre-trib rapture view believes that, boom, the, the, the classic two men working, two women working, and boom, one of them's gone, one of them stays. And then at some point after that, uh, the peace treaty, probably soon after, but the peace treaty will be signed between the Antichrist, who is not yet revealed as the beast, as the Antichrist, and Israel, but will uh, sign a seven-year peace treaty to protect Israel from now the world which has surrounded it and is intent on, on killing it. So he'll come as a false messiah with a false peace, uh, and then uh, soon after that, the seal judgments uh, begin, the seven horrible seal judgments, and then the seven trumpet judgments occur, and that's the first three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time, as it says in Revelation and in Daniel, meaning a year, two years, and half a year in the Babylonian vernacular. Uh, also 42 months, or 1260 days. Um, and then you get to the abomination of desolation, which is where the mid-trib rapture occurs. That is where now the beast is revealed. He breaks the peace treaty. He says no longer can they do the Jewish sacrifice, as you see in Daniel chapter 9, uh, and uh, declares himself God, sets himself up in the temple, and now everybody has to worship him and his image, or they're killed. And you get the 666 economic campaign where nobody can buy or sell. Uh, uh, and then you go into the bowl judgments, incredible. This Jesus calls this portion in Matthew 24 the great tribulation, as has never occurred on the, on the face of the earth. And that's 1260 days. And then is the second coming where Christ comes in uh, at the battle of, uh, wins the battle of Armageddon. Uh, and the post-trib view is that basically in one complex, and we'll talk about that tonight, one very complex second coming event, the first thing Christ does is catch the church up, resurrect the dead in Christ, do all of the rapture thing, and then come down with the saints and the angels to win the battle of Armageddon at his second coming. So the post-trib view has the rapture of the church, the catching away of the, of the saints, and the resurrection of the church as simultaneous with a comp complex uh, second coming event, all of that happening uh, at the same time. <clears throat> and as we begin our last session, as we began our last session, we started with a key concept that gave us a poignant understanding of just how consequential this eschatology is. And so here's your first blanks. It's a key concept. You write it in. If the pre-trib view is right, then the church will be removed before the horrors of the tribulation. 
Notice the pre-trib over here, before the seven years begin. The, uh, if the pre-trib is right, the, before the horrors of the tribulation. But if the post-trib view is correct, believers of the last generation will experience them, the events, the horrors of the tribulation, and, the multitude, and multitudes will die for refusing to take the mark. So you can see the difference, especially dramatic between the pre-trib and the post-trib. The difference of this eschatology is massive for the last generation of believers. So it's nearly impossible to overstate how significant the timing uh, of this is to the generation that sees the, the last days. And last time we looked at some of the strengths of the post-trib view. And if you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you to see it because that's where I establish how reasonable uh, the post-trib view is. Uh, and tonight we turn to some of the challenges that are faced by those who uh, hold the post-trib timing view. So here's the problem number one. Ready? Here's your blank. The post-trib rapture would be the most anticlimactic event in history. Let me say that again. If the post-tribbers are right, the post-trib rapture would be the most anticlimactic event in history. And let me explain what I mean. If Christ doesn't come until the end of the tribulation, then vast numbers of believers will have been beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast. So it seems likely that only a handful of Christians will have been able to successfully hide out till the end of the tribulation. And so, most believers who live in the final generation won't get to experience the return of Christ for his church because most of the church will be decimated and almost all of the followers of Christ will be dead because of the Antichrist going all over the world in this, what will then be a hyper-ultimate surveillance society, identifying those who will not take the mark and beheading them if they won't take it. Uh, and here's the corollary. Here's your blanks. Ready? If, the belie if believers go through the tribulation, which is the post-trib view, believers go all the way through the seven years and are raptured only at the end. If believers go through the tribulation, then the last days seem much more about Antichrist killing the church than Christ saving them. You got that? Think of what that last seven years is. That last seven years is the Antichrist trying to kill every single follower of Christ, everyone who won't take the mark. So it seems that the last seven years of history for the church is about trying not to get killed by the Antichrist rather than anticipating Christ saving the church. And so opponents of the post-trib timing have always been puzzled by the fact that if this view is correct, then the last generation of believers will have to be focused on surviving and avoiding annihilation rather than focusing on Jesus coming for his bride. And this leads to problem number two with the post-trib view. If the rapture, here's your blanks, if the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation, how can this be a comfort to believers? That comes straight out of 1 Thessalonians 4. Look at your text. For this we say, Paul to the church at Thessalonica, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is the classic rapture view, the resurrection of the church. Then we who are alive and are remain, so that's the last generation of believers, the last day for the church uh, on the earth, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so, notice this. 
so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So think about this now in this context. If the post-trib view is correct, how would these words be comforting? This event would happen only after millions of believers have been martyred for the faith, and only a few Christians who've been able to survive the Great Tribulation will be left on the earth to see Christ's appearance. And this segues into problem number three. Here's your blank. It's difficult to see, it's difficult to see how this view passes the blessed hope test. Difficult to see how it passes the blessed hope test. So if the church is going to face all of the ravages of the Great Tribulation, the logical response would be for each generation of believers, ready, to not want Jesus to come back in their day. <laughs> Notice at the, book, at the end of the, the book of Revelation, when Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, rather than the Apostle John responding, Amen, come Lord Jesus, the much more appropriate response would have been, Lord, please don't come quickly. I don't want to go through the tribulation. Please take your time. Feel free to return later because I don't want to go through all of these calamities. But look at the anticipation that Scripture describes when talking about Jesus coming back. Look at this from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Look at this. Looking for the blessed hope... Ready? And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So the blessed hope of the church is that Christ will return. Out of all the wonderful blessings that God has to offer, including heaven itself, God doesn't call heaven the blessed hope. It calls the returning of our Lord and Savior. The return to get us is the blessed hope. Of the church. So among all of the things God has to offer and blessings, guess what? One event is supposed to be the blessed hope for all believers. It's the appearing of Jesus for his bride. And so this allows us to apply a test. When we read any biblical text about the end times, and when we're formulating how it fits into the understanding of the last days, we should ask this question. Is my interpretation of this passage consistent with it being part of the blessed hope of the church? And it's even more instructive to ask it this way. Ready? <laughs> Would I hope that the event being described happens during my lifetime or after I've lived? Now think about this. If the pre-tribbers are right, yeehaw, we're all in, right? This is great. The mess is coming. We're out of here. Okay, and some of the post-tribbers would say, well, that's one of the problems with the pre-trib view is where we all have a conflict of interest. We want it to be true, whether it's true or not. But notice, if in fact the post-tribbers are right, what we're waiting for, and then we'll come back to this later, but think about it. We're not waiting for the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the horrors of seven years of tribulation, where for the last three and a half years, we'll have to survive the onslaught of an annihilation of everyone who follows Christ. So you can see the tension that's created uh, by this. The question, would I like the Great Tribulation to happen in my lifetime <laughs> or after I'm gone? And I think most of us would say, I much prefer after 
That would be my blessed hope. So the pre-trib advocates would say this view fits perfectly with the church anticipating anxiously the coming of Jesus for his bride. And they also point out that if the post-tribbers are right, then what the last generation has to look forward to is pain and pestilence and calamity and being hunted down and killed. And this all happens to the church long before just a few of them who survived the tribulation finally get rescued from annihilation. The pre-tribbers would say, that doesn't sound like a blessed hope to me. Problem number four. Ready? Here's your blanks. The number of long-awaited prophetic promises that have to be fulfilled in one brief event is difficult to comprehend. And this requirement seems to trivialize some of the most important events that will ever occur. Now that you've written that in, read that again. The number of long-awaited prophetic promises that have to be fulfilled in one brief event is difficult to comprehend, and this requirement seems to trivialize some of the most important events that will ever occur. And here's the corollary. Look at this. If the post-trib view is right, here are the events that all must be crammed into no more than a single day, the day of Christ's return. Ready? Here's your blanks. Christ appears in the air. Next, the dead saints are resurrected. This is the much-anticipated resurrection of hundreds of millions of believers' new bodies. Ready? Next, the living saints are changed, right? In the twinkling of an eye, we shall not all sleep, we won't all die, but the ones who are alive at Christ's return will be changed in an instant. Okay? Next, the church meets him in the air. And here's your next blank. The judgment seat of Christ has to happen. More on that in a minute. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice from Revelation chapter 19, it's in, your, it's in your notes here. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to God for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given for her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the, linen is the right, fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Next, look what happens. After the supper, Christ gathers his armies of saints and angels. Then he descends with his armies to fight the battle of Armageddon. And he conquers the armies of Antichrist. Wow! A fairly packed day. (laughs) So... There's a a mind-bending number of huge events that are all packed into the second coming if the post-trib rapture is correct. Remember what we're looking at tonight. The rapture occurs simultaneous at at the end of the seven years, simultaneously with the return of Christ to put his feet on the Mount of Olives and to win the battle of Armageddon. And so um, here's how a well-known pre-trib author has parodied the post-trib rapture. Now, this is sarcastic. Sounds like I'm being very negative on the post-trib view. I'm not. Uh, I think the post-trib view has reasons why it's been strong and around for a really long time in the church. But this is an interesting way to think about it from a pre-trib scholar. Listen to this. First, Christ catches the saints up into the air. Then comes the judgment seat of Christ. And listen, and there's a tiny fraction of a second to have each believer's works tested by fire so that then Jesus can distribute the crowns and rewards to hundreds of millions of believers from all time. 
That has to happen in nanoseconds for each of them, right? Because think of all the people who get the crowns at the judgment seat of Christ. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb. And think about, he says, the, what this is. It's the greatest, most anticipated, most lavish, most significant wedding in all of history where we'll finally meet our Savior face to face and we'll hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But there's only a brief moment for this long-awaited event. So, ready? Inhale your dinner, cram it down, then push back from the table, and the after-dinner entertainment will be joining God's angelic war warriors fighting in the greatest war in history. Wow, he says, what a honeymoon. <laughs> so, again, that's obviously done in sarcasm, but it makes interesting points of if the rapture and the second coming events are all a single complicated event that occur at a single time, it is really tough to understand then how the marriage supper and how the time with Jesus before him at the judgment seat where, he, where, the, where our works are tested by fire and then he gives the crowns, uh, it's hard to understand. So problem number five, I think the pre-tribbers have a good, a good point there. Uh, problem number five, with the post-trib view, here's your blank, it's difficult to keep imminency intact without allegorizing the revelation events that will happen before Christ returns. Let me say that again, and I'm going to unpack this so it just won't be theological words. Ready? With the post-trib view, it's difficult to keep imminency intact without allegorizing the revelation events that will happen before Christ returns. So let's look at just a few of the events in the book of Revelation that are prophesied to occur during the seven-year tribulation. Ready? One-fourth of humanity dies. That's kind of hard to miss. One-third of the vegetation on the earth is burned up. One-third of the survivors from the first quarter that died uh, of humanity then dies. And then from Revelation 10, the two witnesses prophesy for exactly 1,260 days, and then fi and fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies, and they stop the rain from falling for three and a half years, a global drought for three and a half years. Again, hard to miss. Revelation 13, humanity forced to take the mark to be able to buy or sell. Chapter 14, an angel preaches the gospel from uh, the heavens to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. One angel consuming the midheaven of the entire globe and preaching the gospel. And chapter 16, a great global earthquake that's nothing like anything in history and 100-pound hailstones fall on the earth. So now, in that context, with just a few of the events of the tribulation that we just listed, let's think about the post-trib view. They believe that Jesus will return for the church at the end of all of that. But if that's the case, think about it. How could Jesus come for the church today, now, since none of these events have happened, clearly? How does it fit with the fact that the church has always believed that Christ would, could return at any moment? That's the doctrine of imminency, that Jesus can come back at any time, that there aren't any other prophecies that have to be fulfilled before Christ comes for his church. But think about all the things that have to happen for Jesus to come back before Jesus comes back if the post-tribbers are right. There are seven years worth of easily identifiable, unmistakable events that the whole world will see before Armageddon happens. 
So listen again to just a few of the events that happened during the tribulation. The temple has to be rebuilt so the Jews can offer sacrifices in it. The peace treaty with Israel will be headline global news. The witnesses will preach three and a half years with the whole world trying to kill them. There will be events that wipe out a quarter of humanity, then another third of those who are left, worldwide earthquakes, 100-pound hailstones, and it's actually even more problematic than that for the post-trib view. Look at this. It's a key concept. Revelation tells us that there will be exactly 1260 days from the signing of the peace treaty until the abomination of desolation. Got that blank? Ready? And then exactly 1260 days from the abomination until Christ returns at Armageddon. But this obviously creates an issue. This creates a key question for the post-trib view. Ready? Here's your blanks. Since the peace treaty, the abomination, and Armageddon are exactly, specifically time-sequenced, excuse me, specifically timed sequencing, if the rapture of the church occurs simultaneously with Armageddon, which is the, the post-trib view, then how could the church not know? How could the church not know, there's your blank, which day the Lord will return? If all of this is happening... With these exact timing of these events, how could everybody not know, at least those who are in the church who have the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, how could they not know? And therein is the problem. The post-trib view makes it really difficult to retain the imminency of Christ's return for the church because Jesus can't come for his bride until a host of specific events have unfolded for all to see. So now let's bring this discussion around to some key concepts and a big question. Ready? I've written this in for you. Look at this. Key concept number one. The church has always believed that Jesus can return for his bride at any time. That's the doctrine of imminency. We're looking for Jesus. We're not looking for the building of a temple. We're not looking for, the, uh, the, we're not looking for hailstones. We're not looking for worldwide earthquakes. We're not looking for identifying somebody who does the 666. We're looking for Jesus. And key concept number two, this means that whatever your view the timing of the rapture must be a surprise. How many times have we been told? No one knows. No one will know. No one can know the day or the hour. The timing of the rapture must be a surprise. And so this leaves us with a big question for the post-trib view. Here come your blanks. Since many easily identifiable events precede Christ's second coming at the end of the tribulation, right? Look at it. Look at those seven years. Since many easily identifiable events precede Christ's second coming at the end of the tribulation, if the rapture and the second coming are part of the same event, then how could the rapture be a surprise? You can tick it off on your calendar from the peace treaty to the abomination, from the abomination to the return of Christ. You've got exact day counts. So this section has created some significant problems for the post-trib view. Why? Because the seven-year tribulation will have many unprecedented and unique events, and Christ's return will happen exactly seven years to the day after the peace treaty. So here are the problems. Problem number one, here's your blank. At the end of a long string of clearly prophesied and specifically timed global cataclysmic events, how could everyone, including the church, be caught slumbering when the very day of the bridegroom's return 
would be absolutely predictable, right? 1260 days from the peace treaty to the abomination, the day that uh, the beast all of a sudden becomes God declared, that day, 1260 days to the day of Christ returning. And problem number two, ready? Here's your blank. It's really hard to square the snatched away rapture patches, passages, right? They boom, all of a sudden they're gone. It's easy, really hard to square the, the, the snatched away rapture passages with the post-trib view since this event will occur exactly 2,500, here's your blank, 2,520 days after the signing of the peace treaty and exactly 1,260 days after the treaty is broken and thus a person, here's the key, a person could know the day of Christ's return for the church. Now compare this to what the pre-trib timing advocates say. You ready for the alternative? We saw, spent weeks on the pre-trib. This is what the, they would say. They would say the greatest strength of the pre-trib view, the idea that Christ takes the church out before the peace treaty and the seven years. Ready? In the pre-trib rapture timing, nothing has to happen before Jesus returns for his church. You got that? In the pre-trib rapture view, look at it. There's an unknown time from now and all of a sudden, boom, the rapture happens. So notice, see it again, nothing has to happen before Christ returns for his church, keeping perfectly intact the doctrine of imminency that Christ can return at any moment and no one can know the day. So the pre-trib proponents hold that their view is the epitome of, ready? <laughs> if, you were, if you're going to put it in the message, something like, poof, the church is gone in a twinkling of an eye. Therein is where the pre-tribbers think they have it on the post-trib view. And then finally, problem number six. Ready? Here's your blanks. In the post-trib timing, since the church goes through the tribulation, it appears that believers experience God's wrath. Wow, look at that. In the post-trib timing, since the church goes through the tribulation, it appears that the that believers experience God's wrath. And look what we're told in Revelation 16.1. Look at this text. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, this is where the bowl judgments begin in the second half of the tribulation. Ready? Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the entire second half of the tribulation is explicitly God's wrath being poured out on the earth. This occurs right after the, 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 the midpoint uh, of the tribulation. And notice where it, it's very, very explicit. So think about this. Some would argue even that because Jesus opens the seals, that God's wrath is even a part of the first half. But what we know now for sure is this whole second half of the tribulation is God's wrath being poured out. But look, if you believe the post-trib view how is it that the church that has the promise that we will not experience the wrath of God lives through three and a half years of the wrath of God? So this creates a problem for the post-trib view because of an incredible promise from the Lord. Notice from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Isn't this beautiful? For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is amazing. God has not destined us for wrath. What an incredible promise 
from the Lord, and it leads us directly to our applications. Ready? Application number one. Here we go. So if you're not all that into the details of eschatology, now pay attention to the application because they are profound from tonight. Look at this. Because of God's amazing grace, here's your blanks, while we do receive his discipline, notice his discipline all because he's a loving father. While we do receive his discipline, we will never experience his wrath. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. There's nothing like it in every human religion ever conceived of. The concept of payback is universal. You find it in primitive religions, in sophisticated religions, in Eastern religions, in Western religions, and every religion in between. And that's why there's been human sacrifice in so many religions throughout the ages. There were even times, it's horrible to read about, but notice during the time of the kings, there were even times when Israel fell into this horrible confusion and they literally burned their children alive at the altar of the detestable God of Molech. See, the concept of penance, paying for my wrongs, is found in every philosophy and every culture. Notice today, in our supposedly secular society, notice how one side is calling upon payback by the other side for their evils. And that just goes back and forth and back and forth. Interesting that when supposedly everyone's supposed to be able to determine what's right and wrong for them, Everyone, nonetheless, is calling the other side evil and saying they should pay. Humanity cannot get around this concept. Think about it. Paying for your wrongs is found everywhere. In the Eastern religions, guess where you find it? In the karmic cycles, right? If you do bad things in this life, then when you're reincarnated, you will pay for your sins in the next life. You got to be a good thing or a good situation. You got to be rich. You got to be a human. Next time, maybe you come back as a grasshopper, a worm, or a snail. And that is because you're paying for your sins. But then, in dramatic contrast to every other religion and every other worldview and every other ideology, there is the God of the Bible. In Christ, you ready? Everything has been paid everything. But it's almost impossible for a human to conceive of this. So guess what happens? Even in Christianity, there are traditions where people are encouraged to do penance for their sins. And in the more extreme cases, there are spin-off movements and cults that actually believe that we have to pay part of the price in addition to Christ and the cross. There are even some parts of the world that have big festivals. Google it. You'll find it. Big festivals where people march in parades to make whips with shards of glass on the tips of the whips and they flog their own backs and shred their skin in an effort to join Christ, to join Christ in shedding blood for their transgressions while they march in a parade. Now, I don't know anybody that that dramatic, but there are many people who think they understand Christianity that think that in addition to the blood of Christ, I have to do penance for my own sins. Friends, that is hopeless. We can never pay for one drop of Christ's blood. See, the problem with this 
is that the only effective shedding of blood that covers sin is when the one who's bleeding is unblemished, perfect, blameless, and without sin. And therein is the great mystery. There's nothing I can do to get my sins forgiven. Nothing I can do. No action, no activity, no work, nothing. All forgiveness must come from somewhere else. And ready? The price has been paid by the perfect penitent. But when that happens, amazing. All of the wrath and all the condemnation that was due to me has already been poured out on the perfect Lamb of God. And this leads to application number two. You ready? If you've truly repented, if you've truly repented and through the work of the Holy Spirit turned from your sin, remember it's not your righteousness now, it's now Christ's righteousness in us through the infilling of the Holy Spirit that lives out Jesus' righteousness. So it's not our righteousness. We've repented and the Holy Spirit now makes us like Jesus. Ready? Then the residual guilt is not from God. Ready? Look at what you just wrote. This is really important for some people listening tonight. If you've truly repented and through the work of the Holy Spirit turned from your sin, then residual guilt is not from God. You see, the biblical understanding of guilt is surprisingly nuanced, and it's misunderstood by many people. Think about this. Think about the balance, the tension. On the one hand, the conscience that's expressed through guilt is a gift from God that leads us to repentance and salvation. So in the biblical worldview, guilt is important. It's necessary. It's even a gift from God. Why? Because it drives me to finally say, I'm without hope. I am guilty. It's me, Lord. And in that repentance, we finally come to salvation. But ready? On the other hand, many believers who love and are following Christ still live under the power of guilt, the power of shame. And so, guess what? The enemy knows this. The enemy knows that there's good, healthy guilt that snatches people out of his hands and saves them. And he knows that the saved can still be tricked into believing that they still have to do something, that it's not possible that it could truly be that their shame is gone. So look at the enemy has two diametrically opposed weapons when it comes to guilt on different people. Ready? Weapon number one, here's your blank. To those who are living with sin in their life, he, the, the enemy, soothes and dampens the conscience. Look at that. Listen, to those who are living with sin in their life, the enemy soothes and dampens their conscience. Look at this. In this setting, the enemy does all that he can to encourage the self-deception of believing that all is well. I'm living in sin, but all is well. It's going to be fine. I don't want to feel guilty. So he desperately tries to blunt the person's awareness of their peril. He's delighted to have them comfortably slide ever so gradually and almost unknowingly into spiritual death. 
The enemy loves the slumbering, self-deceived person who's gone to sleep with a conscience that stops announcing to them that they're headed for disaster. And nowadays you can pay $250 an hour for secular therapists who will help you get rid of that sense of guilt. The enemy loves that. And then weapon number two. To those who've been truly forgiven, the enemy makes a relentless attempt to ready to create false guilt and self-condemnation. Isn't the enemy clever? Look at he's the perfect liar. Notice the two weapons. For the person who desperately needs a healthy dose of abhorrence of their own sin, Satan has a plan to put them to sleep. But for the person who should be living in the freedom of Christ's incredible forgiveness, the enemy attempts to manufacture a self-abhorrence that ignores the fact that, listen, what God has done. God has buried their sin. He's forgotten their sin. He's separated their sin as far as the east is from the west. But the enemy still wants them to live in guilt and shame. So here's the nuanced biblical truth about guilt and the conscience. God wants every human to face the depths of their wickedness with brutal honesty. Is guilt important? Absolutely. It is a saving necessity. But then, as soon as they've gone through that, he wants them to be set completely free from their sins and from their past, and he wants them to live in the joy of his perfect, freeing, cleansing. He wants us to live into the full meaning of 1 John 1, 9. Ready? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and will, and will, and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After that, there should be no guilt. So I want us to hear the word of freedom that God has for those who've been rescued from darkness, the forgiveness of their sins, and have been transformed by the cleansing fire of the Holy Spirit, and have been empowered by him to live like Christ. Ready? From Hebrews chapter 4. This is wonderful. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. From 1 John, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, ready? When Jesus comes back, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Imagine that. The righteousness of Christ so covering us that we can have confidence when Jesus returns. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1, this is a parallel to the promise of no wrath. Look at this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then this spectacular passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Look at this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, you remember what the Hebrews are thinking about? They're thinking about the guy, the one guy per year that could go into the holy place and they tied a rope around his ankle in case he went in and was ceremonial unclean. And when he stood before God, he dropped dead, but nobody would be able to go in to get him or they would drop dead so they could drag the dead high priest out. Notice, we can go into the holy of holies. 
We have the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Ready? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why can we be free of guilt? Not because of anything we've done. We can be free of guilt and confident before God because of his promise, his faithfulness. Remember, it's not me who began a good work in me. <laughs> he began a good work in we, me, and it's not me who will be faithful to complete it. It's him who will be faithful to complete it. So if we've truly repented of our sins, some of you tonight really need to hear this because you've been following Jesus and the Spirit is working in your life, but you still live with shame from the past. Listen, if you've truly repented of your sin, and now desire by faith to press on to the high calling of God, we can stand boldly before the throne. Praise his holy, gracious name. So think about this incredible promise. It's absolutely unique to biblical thought. We won't receive God's wrath. There is no karmic cycle. Because in Christ, our sin has actually been separated from us. Friends, our sin is buried. Our sin has been forgotten. Our sin has been absolutely paid for. It is gone. So tonight, the question is, are you truly in Christ? Not just religious, not just a churchgoer, not just a tither, not just a good person, not just from a Christian family. The question is, have you personally actually repented of all of your sins and turned from your wicked ways? And if you have, here's the great news. Every ugly, stinking, deceitful, treacherous, secret thing that you've ever done is under the blood. And you've received the inconceivable gift. You ready? the inconceivable gift of no condemnation. So as we close, I want to acknowledge that there may be people watching who have things in your past for which you're so ashamed that you just can't get them out of your mind. And you may even be dogged by the sense that not even Jesus can forgive that sin. Not even Jesus can forgive those sins. They were just too treacherous. So maybe you've asked God for forgiveness over and over and over again. Maybe you've gone to the altar at your church many times trying to somehow cleanse this off of yourself, almost as if you're doing penance by continuing to carry the burden of those sins yourself in your mind and in your heart and in your emotions. But listen, here is the truth from God's word. All of us have sins that shouldn't be forgivable. Every human has sins that shouldn't be forgivable. And yet, with God's perfect salvation, when a person finally comes to the end of trying to save themselves and they truly repent, then God's forgiveness, you ready? God's forgiveness is perfect. 
God's forgiveness is complete and God's forgiveness is indelible. It is gone. When this happens, we can claim those staggering words of Jesus that ring throughout the ages. It is finished. My sin is gone, defeated, buried. My sin is finished. Listen, church. This is the only hope for the human race. Forgiveness in Christ is the only hope for the human race. It's the impossible fact, ready, that while sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Guess who wrote that? The chief of sinners. And this is how the word boldly proclaims the indelible, incredible truths that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, what can we say but with the incredibly sinful hymn writer, the slave trader, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the amazing thing, Lord, is you in your sovereignty and in your omniscience can say, I'm going to forget their sin. Lord, may we be serious about our repentance. If we're guilty, may we realize that the guilt is a gift from you. But Lord, once we've truly repented and confessed and your spirit has helped us to turn from that sin. Lord, may we, like you, leave it behind. Leave it there. Lord, tonight there may be some people who are just dogged by their past. Release them, Lord, with true repentance. And may they have victory over every sin that used to bring shame. Lord, you are so good. We have no idea the mysterious willingness on your part to shed your blood for us. But we thank you. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You are amazing. You are Savior. Amen. Next time, we've now covered the strengths and the weaknesses of the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib rapture timing views. And as you've seen, it's possible to use the scripture to support each of these views. In fact, that's why they've survived for centuries in the church. But this leads to a question. If the return of Christ is such an important doctrine, and if it's the blessed hope of the church, Christ's return, then why would God leave the timing of such an important event up, to, up in the air? Why would he leave something as important as the return of Christ for multiple different interpretations within the historic Orthodox Church?
next time, we'll find that in answering these questions and by living into the tensions that exist between the various views, we'll actually discover profound new insights that the Lord wants us to learn.